Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Organisms such as bacteria, viruses, fungi, or parasites can be harmless or even helpful. But under certain conditions, some organisms may cause disease. Infectious diseases on call with the Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust. It's good to learn these things, you know. Good evening and welcome to the 21st season of On Call with the Prairie Doc, medical information based on science built on trust. I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hullinger, your Prairie Doc host. Tonight, we will be discussing infectious disease. Thank you for joining us. In the studio this evening on the campus of South Dakota State University in Brookings is Dr. Jawad Nazir from Avera Medical Group, infectious disease specialist. Welcome, Dr. Nazir, and thank you for being here. Uh, thank you, Dr. Evans, and thanks for inviting me to the yeah, show. Yeah, it's a. T we, there's always so much to discuss. It's probably my favorite show that we do every year because lots of fun uh, to discuss and pick your brain about infectious diseases. Sure, we are here. Yeah. yeah. So you work in Sioux Falls primarily. Tell us a little bit about what you do as an infectious disease physician. So um, as an infectious disease uh, physician, our practice is focused primarily uh, on patients presenting with uh, a broad range of infections mm -hmm. and, and in all settings, uh, clinics, hospitals, and uh, sometimes at, in the long-term care facilities, you know. So mm -hmm. it's a broad range of uh, infectious disease, uh, ranging from very complicated infections um, in the hospital, like patients with uh, septic shock, really complicated pneumonias, um, meningitis, mm -hmm. severe skin and soft tissue infections, uh, infections in patients who have very uh, low or poor immune system, you know, like mm -hmm. patients getting chemotherapy or organ transplant. So uh, very complicated patients in the hospital setting uh, we see, and then some of those patients we have to continue to follow um, uh, after they are discharged from the hospital mm -hmm. because they are on uh, antimicrobial treatments, you know, which uh, needs to be monitored closely and they have a lot of adverse reactions, you know. Mm -hmm. In the clinic setting, you know, we see uh, patients with undiagnosed infections, unexplained fevers, uh, so uh, patients with HIV, mm -hmm. uh, immunosuppressed patients with infections not improving, they're not sick enough to be in the hospital but not getting better. Mm -hmm. um, we also see patients for travel consultations, sure. uh, patients you know who are traveling globally and they need advice on uh, how to prevent infections, you know, mm -hmm. ranging from general advice to uh, use of medications and uh, and vaccinations, you know. Yeah. So it's it's a broad range, you know, of infections in all settings. Yeah. And I know that we the hospital systems also look to people like you when it comes to things like preventing the spread of infections in hospitals or decreasing our antibiotic use appropriately. So probably a lot of committee and yep, advising yep. work too, huh? So I think apart from uh, seeing patients, which actually is about 80% of my work, yeah. you know, as you mentioned, we are engaged in uh, some of this work preventing infections, like you know, being part of the infection control program mm -hmm. because you know, when we talk about these infections, uh, some of them 
are spread very rapidly in healthcare settings, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, some of the, like, Clostridium difficile infection, MRSA, infections due to resistant bacteria. Mm -hmm. And I think the hospitals are concerned, and, uh, and nationwide, I think there is a lot of guidance uh, how to prevent this for a couple of reasons. One, uh, once these bacteria become resistant to a variety of antibiotics, we do not have enough drugs to, to, right. to treat, you know. So, uh, unfortunately, a majority of these patients die or they remain hospitalized for a very long time in the mm -hmm. hospital. Um, and secondly, these pathogens are the ones which spread very quickly, very rapidly, mm -hmm. and the patient next room or on the next floor with a very pure, uh, poor immune system, you know, could catch that infection. So right. the patient may be coming from for something else like an acute myocardial infarction, you know, or, or you know, a, a, a abdominal surgery or any other reason, but they end up getting an infection due to right. a resistant pathogen and then their course in the hospital yes. is, is prolonged, you know. Yeah. So it does not have, uh, not only it has an impact on the patients, it has impact on hospitals because mm -hmm. the length of stays prolonged or the cost of care mm -hmm. is, is, is high. The hospitals are kind of stretched to max right. these days. You know, there are patients who are really complicated, cannot really get into the hospitals. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, you know, uh, delays uh, treatment uh, yeah. uh, for many patients. Uh, it's a cost thing too, you know, it's costly. Right. So there's significant cost. In fact, you know, the cost of infection due to resistant mm -hmm. bacteria is, uh, is in billions of dollars, you know, like, yeah. uh, so it's very significant. And then also, as you mentioned, COVID, I think part of our uh, mm -hmm. role has been to guide our hospital administration, uh, you know, on the steps they can take, mm -hmm. you know, to prevent spread of COVID in the hospitals, as well as uh, the help we can provide as infectious disease specialist in public health, you know, yeah. educating not only our providers, uh, you know, but the public as well about the need for vaccination, which is so important, not only in COVID, uh, but prevention of so many other infections, you know, yeah. which, which leads to the end result with uh, hospitalizations right. and, and death, you know, so, and then I think uh, guiding our providers about the new treatment options and sure. especially like COVID. So, mm -hmm. so it has been a very interesting uh, last few years. It's been a fast couple years, yeah. years, I'm sure, for <laughs> <Definitely>, you. <yeah. laughs> Before we go further, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions for tonight's discussion about infectious disease. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we do receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So it's a timely day to be talking about vaccines because it's flu shot season, right? Tell yeah. us about what, what are we expecting or what, what might we guess flu season will be like this year? What do you? It yeah. sounds like we're, we're seeing influenza at least in the Southern United States, right? Yes. Maybe not so much here in South Dakota yet. We have seen several cases in South Dakota. Okay. I think there are more than 10 cases already. I don't mm -hmm. know the exact number, but you're right. I think um, with the COVID, with so much emphasis on masking and, and preventive measures like social distancing, uh, the last couple of years, we did not see a significant number yeah. of patients with influenza. But one of the things we have to watch very closely is what has happened in the Southern Hemisphere. So mm -hmm. like if you look in Australia, uh, some, sometimes, you know, the, the influenza activity there 
predicts what can happen here. And they actually had one of their worst seasons in the last several years, mm. you know, with a lot of uh, infections, uh, a lot of infections causing severe disease, mm -hmm. hospitalizations, and, and mortality. And in some parts of uh, USA, like in New York and Texas, they have already seen like, you know, a significant, like I think in New York uh, city area, over a thousand cases. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, and we um, if they look at the number of cases at this time of the year and compare it to the similar time, uh, same time mm -hmm. last year, it's a significant rise. Yeah. So I think our concern is, and I think it's, you know, nobody could be 100%, you know, um, accurate, but I think we are anticipating a tough influenza season, you know, mm -hmm. as with, as I think our, uh, uh, practices, masking, you know, all those measures are, you know, getting relaxed. Uh, uh, there's a possibility, um, you know, that they, we may see a higher number of, uh, of cases, you know. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, who should get a flu shot? Who should get a flu vaccine? Well, I think everybody, you know, age six months and above, yeah. you know, is, uh, is, is should be getting uh, uh, the flu shot. And I think with vaccinations, as with COVID, mm -hmm. what we have learned is that we don't. We not only get these, uh, you know, uh, vaccine like influenza or COVID to protect ourselves. Right. We get it to protect people around us. You yeah. Know? So you know, people in our household who are elderly, mm -hmm. uh, people you know who have uh, immune deficiencies or their immune system is weak due to a medical condition or a right. medication they are on. If we are a healthcare worker, you know, we think about the patients we are seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, many of them have very weak immune systems. So, I think one aspect, one lesson we have learned with COVID is that is we don't we don't only vaccinate for ourselves; it's for the people around us. Yeah. You know, now patients uh, who um, everybody should get vaccinated, but patients, you know, or people who have chronic medical conditions, mm -hmm. which puts them at a higher risk to have a severe disease. Yeah. Now, severe disease means patients ending up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. It means patients dying from the infection. You right. know? So for example, you know, somebody who has diabetes, you know, mm -hmm. who has a chronic kidney disease, um, mm -hmm. chronic liver disease, you know, lung conditions, congestive heart failure, mm -hmm. obesity, uh, patients who are on medications which decrease their immune systems. Mm -hmm. These are some examples um, of patients, you know, who can have bad complications, who can get severe disease, uh, who can end up in the hospital. So those should definitely get it. Yeah, good. While we're talking about flu shots, I'm sure we'll get a, a question about co the updated COVID vaccines. Tell yep. us what you know about um, the newer bivalent COVID yep. boosters and um, that, what you're recommending to your patients. Yeah, I'm very strongly recommending it uh, mm -hmm. to my patients. And in fact, I have gotten it myself uh, about a week ago, mm -hmm. uh, along with my actually flu shot. So one yeah, thing is that I got both of them and didn't have much much of an issue, you know. Yeah. So uh, so I think the reason to strongly recommend is that uh, the pandemic is not entirely over yet. You right. know? I think uh, when you look at multiple countries in the world mm -hmm. reporting increasing cases and hospitalizations uh, you know it's very hard to say it's over but i think fortunately we are in a very uh, manageable phase of this yeah. pandemic i think the speed with which these vaccines have been developed and they are one of the safest vaccines actually they have been given to millions of uh, people uh, and it has prevented so many in infections so many hospitalizations and, and mortality, uh, I think that's that's really a miracle. Yeah, I think if we really think is. in that direction, Amazing. I think we go through a lot of, um, uh, you know, comments about the vaccines, but considering the speed with which these yeah. vaccines have been uh, developed and how safe they are,
are mm -hmm. and how much impact they had in this pandemic to you know uh, on the health of people uh, i think i think it's nothing uh, less than a miracle now why it is important to consider booster because virus is evolving yeah it's, it keeps on evolving we started with alpha beta delta omicron you know and then we have sub variants you know yeah uh, and then you know uh, as the, the sub variants emerge they primarily mean that there is mutation in the spike protein you know mm -hmm. of the of the virus and with these mutations uh, some of the previous vaccines we have used become ineffective you know mm -hmm. not completely ineffective but you know they kind of their their efficacy decreases to prevent yeah. severe disease you know especially in patients who are elderly or mm -hmm. have immune immunosuppressive uh, conditions you know so the most recent strain prevailing globally and in USA uh, we have been BA.4 and BA.5 there are few other strains now emerging as well uh, but the bivalent vaccine you know has a component of the ancestral strain and mm -hmm. but it also has coverage for the current prevailing strains mm -hmm. you know and i think it's a, it's a good way to energize your immune system to mm -hmm. to develop the antibodies which will cover what is going on right now the strains which mm -hmm. are causing disease right now yeah. so i think getting booster is very timely because we are getting into winter months you know they're going yeah. to be holidays you know um, nobody can predict you know more variants you know right. we are hoping that we will not see the kind of you know infections the numbers we had seen last year and the year before yes. but i think we have kind of become you know desensitized to the numbers now like True. so we say you know like thousands were dying uh, now 300 people are still dying per day you know right. but and i think we don't you know, sometimes think you know we are out of pandemic but <laughs> it's okay but 300 per yeah. day is a significant it's number more than we would ever want yeah, yeah. so still i think we uh, need to focus our i think um, efforts to uh, encourage people to get yeah. the boosters to help you know the ones who are vulnerable mm -hmm. uh, primarily yeah good well, we're getting some questions from from our viewers we have a caller from Sioux Falls actually asking about the fluid covid-19 vaccines she asked if they're dead virus vaccines so let's talk about what type of vaccines these are how about let's start with covid-19 let's uh, the is, i think the messenger rna vaccine yeah. you know i think is the concept you know which uh, uh, is like a uh, serves as a messenger you know mm -hmm. to generate the product of antibodies, you know, directed yeah. against the spike protein of the of the virus, yeah. you know. So not not a dead or a live virus vaccine, no, no. actually, kind yeah. of a, a different yeah. Yeah. type. And uh, it can be given to people actually, you know, who are immunosuppressed because it does not lead to replication of the virus right. in your body. You know, it's right. not like a live vaccine. Yes. You know, uh, so it's very safe. And I think in our experience in the last several years, uh, uh, you know, it has been given to a lot of uh, immunosuppressed patients and have mm -hmm. protected them. Yeah. How about the flu vaccine what type are most flu vaccines what type of vaccine uh, you know we uh, these are the vaccines you know which are kind of targeted to cover the most recent mm -hmm. strains you know like h3n2 and h1n1 you know the alpha uh, sorry the mm -hmm. influenza a and b uh, and uh, they are uh, types of vaccines you know which are high dose primarily mm -hmm. you know for patients who are above 65 you know right. to generate a higher immune response these are not live vaccines as well not live. So, made yeah. with killed virus yeah. actually right yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so they not yeah. do, do not lead to replication of the uh, of the virus in your body. You know, like the mm -hmm. like the flu block, the flu zone, the flu head. You know, so those are not live vaccines as well. Yeah, good. We the only distinction is that 65 and above, we do recommend the high dose vaccine. Right. Yeah. Yes, and we seem to have a better supply of that than we've had in years past. Yes, I've yeah, at least been able to give them to all my patients. Yeah. I think. 
Yeah. So we have a caller from Sioux Falls who says says they've had four COVID-19 shots. So I suppose, you know, the two in early 2021 and then the booster last fall and then another booster this spring. Wondering if it's safe to get a fifth shot. Yes, I think the yes. recommendation is that uh, it should be at least two months from your right. uh, last, you know, uh, uh, booster shot. You know, uh, I think the the early data which is emerging and there's a very um, comprehensive surveillance system for monitoring of the adverse mm -hmm. reactions by CDC. You know, so so far we have not identified any uh, any data or any concerns that you know the uh, the, COVID, uh, the COVID bivalent booster, which has a lot of people have already received it, you know, has led to any increased adverse reactions, mm -hmm. you know. It's the same kind of the method, you know, the messenger RNA vaccine, you know. Right. So uh, the adverse reactions are pretty much uh, similar to one uh, ones, you know, like local yeah. injection reactions, a little bit of a fever or mm -hmm. a headache or a fatigue. Uh, in fact, I think in my personal experience, those were much little milder this time, you know. So. Yeah. But I think there's also studies which have shown that if you get some of those uh, reactions like little fever or body aches, that just means that your immune system has reacted very well. So yeah. you probably are generating a yeah. higher antibody response, which may be more protective for yeah. you. Yeah. So if it's been more than two months, not only safe, but recommended yeah, to get the Highly recommended, vaccine. yeah. Good. Um, we'll change gears a little bit. Uh, we have a question from out there about um, sexually transmitted diseases. Are STDs like gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia becoming antibiotic resistant and not being able to be treated as well before as before? I guess let's talk about what are, what are we seeing in the world of STDs? We're seeing well, higher numbers. I think what we need to worry lot, right? these days um, is very high number of syphilis. You know? Yeah. Uh, case in South Dakota, compared to last previous years, uh -huh. we have seen like dramatic increase in the number of uh, syphilis cases. You know, right. unfortunately, congenital syphilis as well. So you know, in pregnancy, if syphilis is mm -hmm. not treated, you can have congenital syphilis. You know, so meaning uh, the the new baby comes out infected so, and can have some major, major problems. Yeah, it can, can, can come out sooner with problems. Yeah. And, or maybe, you know, may not be born alive, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, uh, you know, is concerning. Um, that's why I think there's a lot of um, emphasis, you know, by our state health department and um, medical professionals, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for timely screening. So yeah. maybe enhanced screening, you know, like early in pregnancy, you know, at 28 weeks in third trimester and maybe at delivery, you know. So, yeah. so I think that screening is really important. Mm -hmm. And also in the other groups, you know, sexually active, you know, individuals, you know, um, MSM population, you know, I think it's very important to uh, to test, you know, because if you test early, you can treat and mm -hmm. decrease transmission. Right. So I think that's a that's a concern right now in our state, Just you know, finding uh, diagnosing cases. these cases yeah. in a timely fashion. In regards to treatment, I think there's not much concern for resistance with yeah. syphilis treatment. That's still in the old benzathine penicillin, you know. Yeah, it's one of the few infections that <laughs> yeah. it's penicillin all yep. the way, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I actually had a patient just last Friday, uh, you know, a 28-year-old um, uh, girl, you know, so who actually um, uh, uh, was in first trimester and diagnosed with, with syphilis. Mm -hmm. uh, she actually had a very bad rash and tested positive mm -hmm. as a part of the timely screening by her, you know, sure. gynecologist, you know. And she unfortunately was had a very terrible reaction to penicillin mm -hmm. um, as a child, you know, as anaphylactic reaction. Mm -hmm. So we had to bring her to the hospital and desensitize her. Yeah, so because that's the end. We don't really have another good choice. The other choices are not as good. There's yeah. not much data, and somebody's right. pregnant, you want to do 
the best, you know. So yeah. we actually desensitized in the hospital yeah. setting and gave her penicillin and she did fine, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's that's concerning. For some of the other infection, there is concern like gonorrhea. Yeah. You know, they, I think there is increasing resistance, you mm -hmm. know, uh, to, uh, to some of the antibiotics which is emerging. But with COVID last two years, some of that surveillance has actually dropped you know mm. like i think one of the issues that we have some, we have knowledge of some microorganisms becoming more resistant but some pathogens the, the, some of the surveillance efforts you know have sure. been lost you know so we do not have an exact idea of how resistant they are right. but i think in the next uh, uh, 6 months to 1 year we'll, we'll have a better idea where we are labs with that. were just preoccupied with yeah. monitoring covid yeah, yeah. okay well on that note an infectious disease that has been on the rise in south dakota and the country is syphilis Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower spoke with the South Dakota Department of Health about the increasing number of cases. Angela Casillo is the Infectious Disease Director with the South Dakota Department of Health, and she says syphilis cases have sharply risen since 2021 in South Dakota and nationwide. It has continued to increase since that time, both nationally and in South Dakota and in surrounding states. Um, we're currently experiencing over a 2,100% increase over our five-year uh, median baseline. Casillo says the main age group being affected are those between the ages of 25 and 49. The age range of 25 to 49 is our age range that we're seeing primarily infected. And we do have cases you know, under the age of 25 and over the age of 49, but primarily within that age group. It could look like maybe just a little pimple, a little herpes. Maybe a lot of people mistake that for a herpes infection. And then the signs and symptoms vanish. But the disease is still in your body for a lifetime if unchecked. And that can lead to serious health problems in the future. It's not producing any symptoms. People don't think there's anything to be concerned about. And then later on, it can be 10, 20 years later, there are manifestations um, that can occur. And most of those are neurological in nature. Casillo says the best way to prevent STIs like syphilis is to be open with your healthcare providers along with getting tested and practicing safe sex. So if you are sexually active, um, you need to be practicing safe sex. The other key piece is testing. Anyone who is sexually active should be testing themselves and not just for syphilis. I mean, we're seeing a rise in all sexually transmitted infections. So they should be testing themselves for all sexually transmitted infections. And if someone does test positive for syphilis, it is important to talk to a healthcare provider for treatment. The treatment is very easy. Um, it's a shot. It can be up to three shots depending on the stage. But if you catch it early, um, you can have you can go in, see your healthcare provider, and receive one shot. And notify any partners to have them tested and treated to mitigate the spread. And then also to notify any partners that you've been with that they could be at risk. And it's important for them to receive preventative treatment and testing as well. It's a great message. I tell my patients, if you ever have even the least bit of concern, let's test for, for STIs. And even if it's just sort of a maintenance um, for, for some patients doing once a year 
uh, testing is very reasonable because some of these infections don't cause much in the way of symptoms. Yes, yeah, yeah I think that's a that's a very important point because you know it, you can have minimal symptoms or asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. It can manifest weeks to months later. Yeah. Unfortunately, in small number of people, it can manifest many years later right. with severe complications involving heart and brain. You know. Yeah. So I think getting tested early and getting treated early is the best course. So completely agree for the with the great message. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely, and it's easy to test for. It's usually urine and blood testing or maybe in women uh, a, a vaginal exam. Yes. Yeah. Um, good. Well, we got a, a bunch of different questions, so let's just get after some of these. Um, we had a caller ask about seeing something in the news after the hurricane, talk about a brain-eating amoeba. Um, and is this something they should worry about in lakes or from the ocean? And I think they're talking about nigleria. Yeah, and we nigleria have floriae. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. So. There was a case more in the Midwest even recently, wasn't there? Um, I, I have not seen a case here, okay. but there may be a case here. Uh, but it's pretty common in the uh, underdeveloped countries. You know, okay. uh, you know, people who are swimming and young boys who are jumping mm. in the lakes. You know, leads to sometimes you know kind of a fracture of you know like a cribriform mm. plate of your ethmoid bone. You know, with a lot of water pressure. Yeah. So I think these waterborne um, organisms, you know, can penetrate, get into um, in, in the central nervous system and cause infection. It's pretty mm -hmm. very. Um, uh, very kind of you know like a, a severe infection you know very hard to treat almost 100% mortality you yeah know, with, with that infection it is. it's a scary thing yeah. um, it's, I don't we think don't see it very often in the US I, uh, we in South Dakota I think we have not maybe there yeah. have been few cases but it's just I think a reminder you know I think to be careful when we are jumping and diving you know in yeah. the lakes you know so, yeah. yeah okay um, we had a caller, this is an interesting question. How can it be safe to have bacteria living in our gut, but dangerous to get those bacteria, for example, in a wound or another part of our body? This is an intelligent question, alluding to the fact that we do have bacteria living all over and inside uh, yeah, of us. Yeah. And how can those bacteria not cause harm, but maybe in the wrong place they do cause harm? Yeah, that's that's actually a very great, uh, very, very interesting mm -hmm. question, you know. So, in our body, we have more bacteria than the cells we have. You know, yeah. our skin is full of bacteria. You know, our GI tract, you know, is mm -hmm. full of bacteria. But then I think you know, you know, our body organs like skin and the gastrointestinal tract, you know, has functions. You know, mm -hmm. and skin actually, one of the functions of skin is a barrier to right. infection. So although these bacteria are living in a very healthy manner, you know, on your skin, you know, uh, if there's a break in the skin, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for some reason, then I think that barrier is is kind of lost. You know, and these these bacteria can get underneath and then they cause infection you know mm -hmm. some of those infections can be very very uh, severe yeah. uh, so if they are not in the part of the body where they are supposed to be yeah. uh, depending on what the bug is uh, they can be troublesome you know right. in the GI tract there are a lot of bacteria you know they live uh, uh, you know in kind of a balance you know mm -hmm. uh, sometimes when we overuse antibiotics um, we kill the the normal flora of our gastrointestinal tract mm -hmm. which creates a vacuum and some of the others like clostridium can start growing, sure. they can start producing toxins, you know, and cause severe infections, you know. Uh, so I think when we do something to disrupt the, the normalcy, you know, the natural habitat of these bacteria, right. I think it causes trouble. Another example is like the chemotherapy, when patients get mm -hmm. a lot of chemotherapy, mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, destroys their gastrointestinal tract, makes them very weak, very mm -hmm. friable, and it gives a chance for those uh, enteric bacteria 
because you know the mucosal barrier is now very weak right. they can translocate and get into your bloodstream mm -hmm. but now they're not supposed to be in the blood you know? yeah so if they get in the place they're not sick. supposed to be yeah. you know they will cause infection then they can go to any part of your body you know they can mm -hmm. metastasize you know cause septic shock you know so so I think it's a very interesting uh, nice balance you know with mm -hmm. the bacteria we have friendship with them you know <laughs> but if they are in the place where they're not supposed to be right. you know due to a number of variables, uh, then I think they can become uh, very pathogenic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Good. Um, let's see, we have a question, another one about the flu vaccine. Why does the influenza vaccine have to be redesigned every year? What is it about influenza that makes it so uniquely changing? Yeah, I think I, I don't have a good answer mm -hmm. uh, to, to that question. You know, I think, I mean, if, if it was so simple, we could have just developed one vaccine. Mm -hmm. I think the way it mm -hmm. evolves, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's so, it's so, so different, you know, uh, and I think uh, it's, it's very hard to predict, you know, like which, uh, you know, strains, you know, would mm -hmm. be predominant, you know, and, and, and the vaccines, you know, I mean, they do their best to kind of fit in the strain with, with the composition of the vaccine, uh, but it's still never, you know, like we, we, we don't expect it to be 100 percent effective I think our goal uh, is to prevent severe disease here mm -hmm. again you know so severe disease meaning hospitalization or, or mortality but yeah. people can still get get infected yeah know? yeah so it's really it's the influenza virus's fault it's how it changes every year that makes it, it evolves, hard on our yeah. vaccine makers and right it's, it's very hard for us to predict which way yeah. it will evolve you know every year yeah, yeah. Good. Um, we have a question uh, from Arlington. How contagious is RSV, respiratory syncytial virus? How can you reduce the risk of exposing babies and why are we seeing so much RSV this year? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about RSV and yeah. what kind of illness does it cause? So it's a respiratory syncytial virus, you know, uh -huh. uh, primarily in children can cause very severe respiratory tract infection. You know, it can involve the upper respiratory tract. So like, you know, people like cough, runny nose, but sometimes go down the tract, you know, mm -hmm. involves the lungs and, you know, uh, uh, patients can become very short of breath, get into respiratory failure, mm -hmm. get hospitalized, unfortunately die as well, you know. Again, I think uh, in the last two years with a lot of, um, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, masking and, you know, like a lot of, you know, good things we did to kind of mitigate the risk of COVID-19, yeah. uh, it's possible that, you know, the population uh, exposure and, and baseline immunity to some of these infections, including influenza and virus, you know, mm -hmm. and RSV and some others uh, may have decreased, you know. So as mm -hmm. I think we are relaxing now, uh, you know, there's there's minimal you know, baseline immunity to to fight these yeah. viruses. You know, and and we are seeing a rise. Uh, RSV definitely, uh, we are seeing a significant increase nationwide mm -hmm. uh, with RSV, uh, and I think a lot of clinics nationwide are very busy yeah. uh, with patients, uh, uh, children presenting with it. You know, mm -hmm. and and unfortunately, sometimes adults can get very sick from it too. Yeah. You know, especially I had a patient um, that was hospitalized with RSV last yeah, year. I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and I think uh, especially you know again. Patients with, with decreased immune system, you know, they are highly vulnerable uh, mm -hmm. to severe disease uh, from RSV. How to prevent it? There is there is no specific treatment for it. There is no yeah. vaccine for it, unfortunately. But I think some of the basic infection prevention measures, you know, like right. good hand hygiene, you know, um, you know, trying to you know avoid places where they raise RSV, you know, overcrowded, yeah. you know, and you know, seeing your provider, you know, if you are concerned about it, you know, if they get worse, they need supportive care. Right. Uh, I think some of those basics we still have to implement to to yeah. fight it. Yeah. It's a good reminder if, as an adult, if you have 
a cold, don't go visit your family or friend that has the new baby or yeah. a small child at home because a, yeah. a lot of we are sick, you um, know, adults when home. we get RSV, it's yeah. kind of a cold, but yeah. you can spread something that might be really dangerous for that baby. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, am I hearing talk about an RSV vaccine under, under development? Yes, I've about heard about that. it, yeah. and I think it may have been tried in a certain group of uh -huh. patients, you know. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's, you know, um, has been implemented, you know, in a broad range of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, population or ready for implementation Still yet. Trials. But I think I think there are some encouraging news I've heard too, you know. Yeah, that would be yeah. good for good for our babies. Yeah. Okay. Um, we have a caller from Sioux Falls wondering if shaking hands can increase the spread of disease and should people avoid shaking hands with one another? Gosh, I've wondered this. I used to shake every patient's hand when I walked into the clinic room and that I didn't for a long time, and now I'm wondering, you know, am I missing it, or is it? Am I okay without the handshake? <laughs> what do you think? I, I think it's, it's. I think I would say it's a personal choice, yeah. you know. Here, um, you know, I think when you ha shake hand in a hospital healthcare setting, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, definitely there is a risk of transmission of some, you know, yeah. hospital-acquired bacteria, and mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, it's possible. But then we have hand hygiene too, right. you know. So I think uh, if we practice good, good hand hygiene, we should not be worrying about handshakes. That's I think cultural, it's personal choice, and um, yeah. uh, I won't discourage people for with, with handshakes. But I think with the understanding that it can transmit infections, yeah. you know. So mm -hmm. in focusing on your hand hygiene, hand washing, you know, yeah. I think that's right. that's important. Yeah. yeah, maybe depends on the setting and whether you can wash your yeah, hands quickly yeah, or not. Yeah. Huh? In hospital setting. You know, uh, personally, uh, we don't do too much of handshakes. You know, yeah. to um, to decrease the risk of infection mm -hmm. in, in the clinics. You know, but if a if a patient will you know uh, push his hand forward, you know, I, I will definitely shake the hand. We'll yeah. do the hand hygiene later. You know? Right, <laughs> <laughs> it should be fine. You know? so, okay. Yeah. Um, we had a caller ask, is there a vaccine for Lyme disease? Yeah, I think this is a question has been asked multiple mm -hmm. times, and I have not heard about no, it so either. far. Um, I think uh, maybe there is something in, in development, mm -hmm. but I've not heard about a vaccine, you know, which is very efficacious, you yeah. know, to prevent Lyme disease at this point. Yeah. Uh, do, do we see much Lyme disease in South Dakota? Not, you know, it's, not it's much more much. common yeah. further east in Wisconsin and even yeah. Minnesota. But yeah. yeah, in those areas adjoining our state, you know, uh -huh. there may be some cases, uh, but it's not very significant, you know. Here. Yeah. yeah, we don't have the right ticks yes, here in yeah. South Dakota, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, we had a question, is a staph infection considered a severe infection? Let's talk about staph and yeah. what, what this patient is calling staph. What are, yeah. what, what is this bacteria and what kind of type, kind of illness? So there are different cause? types of staph, yeah. you know, for example, Staphylococcus aureus, you know, which is a, what we call a coagulase, coagulase positive, right. then there's coagulase negative. So there's a big dictionary of staph, you know. Right. But I think it's a good question because some staph infections are very serious. Yeah. You know, staph, staph aureus, you know. Mm -hmm. And again, I think I mentioned that where they are, which part of the body they are, if mm -hmm. they are in the blood, that's a big deal. You know, if you have staph aureus in the blood, mm -hmm. it's one of the tough infections yeah. to treat, you know, because staph is what we call a very pyogenic, like pus producing, yeah. causes a lot of inflammation in the blood. It can mm -hmm. go to multiple sites in your body, infect your heart valves, get mm -hmm. to your brain, get to your bones, get to any hardware you have, cause tough problems, you know. So staph in the blood is a, is a major problem, staph right. aureus, you know. And unfortunately, some of these staph aureus have become resistant to, mm -hmm. you know, so what we call MRSA, you know, mm -hmm. methicillin resistant uh, staph aureus. That is even tougher to treat because our anti 
antimicrobial options are kind of limited when we mm -hmm. are dealing with resistant bacteria. Now, if it is in a wound, you know, it's not as sure. complicated or doesn't have that much of a high mortality compared yeah. to the blood, but still it can cause a lot of infection, inflammation, it can spread uh, from a wound to a bone, you know. Right. Uh, so uh, uh, so I think it depends where, uh, what mm -hmm. is the site of the infection, you know. Uh, we worry about blood and what type of staph it is. Sure. If it is like staph aureus or, or one of those others quite negative, which mm -hmm. are not as bad as the staph aureus. And then I think how resistant they are sure. to the antibiotics. We also worry about the host. I think that's another sure. thing. We worry about the bugs. You know, we mm -hmm. worry about the host too. You know, if someone is really young, um, he can clear the infection mm -hmm. very, very quickly. You know, uh, the good immune system. You know, the antibiotics decrease the concentration of those bacteria. Your immune system takes over, and you're good. You know, sure. somebody with a poor immune system doesn't happen like that way. They yeah. actually struggle. You know, so if someone has a poor immune system, meaning they are on medic chemotherapy medications, mm -hmm. they had a transplant. You know, they are on steroids. You know, so they are elderly. You know, just age is mm -hmm. another factor to two if you're above 65. So um, depending on the host, you know, uh, the outcomes are also related to what kind of uh, patient we are talking yeah. about. So I won't ignore it, you know, staph uh, yeah. is a tough one. It kind of reminds us of the importance of antimicrobial stewardship right. too, a little bit. Right. You know, so, yeah. I, I, I assume that staph aureus probably is one of the more common bacterial infections that you see in the hospital. Very common. Yeah. And, and, and for some reason, I'm seeing more and more of it, you know, yeah. like, I've seen two staph aureus in the blood today, actually. You yeah. Know? So we, I was just, I was just thinking today, like, why are we seeing more staph aureus <laughs> in the blood these days? Which is it just a coincidence, or yeah. we're going to monitor this a little bit to see, you know? But, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but definitely, I think uh, staph aureus in the blood is is a very serious infection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. South Dakota State University is known for its agriculture programs, but did you know they host a food safety lab as well? We spoke with Dr. Russ Daly and Dr. Joy Scaria from the Animal Disease Research and Diagnostic Laboratory about how they are keeping South Dakotans safe from foodborne pathogens. ADRDL, Animal Disease Research and Diagnostic Laboratory. So every state has something like this, uh, a laboratory that's dedicated to animal health, and they help uh, the animal producers, the animal owners, and the veterinarians in those states answer questions about animal disease issues and, and animal health issues. Um, we have an R in our name, besides the diagnostic lab, that indicates we do some research. We really specialize mostly on livestock here at SDSU in this lab because of the part of the country we're in. A lot of beef, a lot of uh, dairy, a lot of swine, uh, sheep and goats. The research in my lab, uh, you know, addresses the human and animal health from a perspective of one health. The idea is that uh, human, animal and environmental health are tied to each other and we need to address all these three things as a whole. It's very common that we'll work with human disease issues that originate in animals. And, and some of those disease issues, we have to, we start with the animals and that's where the problem first comes up. We are unique in, uh, in a way when compared to other diagnostics labs because our lab combines research um, and diagnostics. So the focus of our food safety lab is to keep uh, track of the uh, you know, foodborne pathogen incidents uh, both in uh, humans as well as animals. So we are a Food and Drug Administration affiliate lab for State of South Dakota. In that capacity, we do multiple things. Uh, one is uh, we go into grocery stores, uh, buy random meat and other samples, 
bring them to the lab and test for presence of uh, bacteria like uh, Salmonella, E. coli, Listeria and Campylobacter. These are the four main bacteria that we test for. Well, so this all started with a call from the Department of Health, uh, a couple of illnesses in people. Uh, they identified an unusual strain of Salmonella. The strain's name is called Salmonella bongeri. And it is a atypical strain of salmonella that you usually never see infecting people. The health department, one of their jobs then is to try to figure out where this infection came from. So they will uh, interview the patients and talk about food sources and whatever, what animals that they contact. And it, it turned out that these two households had um, both had bearded dragons as pets in the household. As, as the state public health vet, when an animal thing is involved, then they reach out to me. And so we determined that we could try to get some samples from those animals and then kind of see, okay, is it the same thing in the, in the animals as it was in the people? And then what we found was that the bongori we isolated from uh, the pet uh, and the kids were 100% identical. So it's an interesting case where both Department of Health, our lab, and uh, work together and we use the information from um, previously reported uh, you know, cases and we could tie it all together. ADRDL uh, is a unique lab because uh, being in the university, you know, gives us, uh, you know, additional leverage in terms of uh, being able to use the uh, high-performance computing capacity on campus, uh, graduate students uh, developing, you know, new tests and then working with the, uh, uh, the staff in the diagnostic lab. The ADRDL really helps SDSU in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, it provides research opportunities for our researchers who, who can get grants then and hire students. great segment. We were just yeah. talking before the show, Dr. Nazir, about how infectious disease sometimes is like being a detective trying to get to the bottom of where did this odd bacteria come from? And yeah. uh, that was a good story about the, the bearded dragons. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, um, you know, it kind of covers the topic of zoonotic infections, yeah. you know, and there are many other examples like you, fever, mm -hmm. uh, for example, rabies, you know, right. the, the infections we can we can catch, you know, from animals. Uh, so I think mm -hmm. uh, we, we got to be a little, you know. Yeah, uh, we have a lot of those in South Dakota, actually. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yeah. And I think that brings that concept of one health, you know, which is yeah. being, being talked about that, you know, we live in this environment, environment, animals, humans, you know, food, you know, everything right. is kind of climate, you know, everything mm -hmm. is kind of linked, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that understanding those linkages are important in our understanding of uh, zoonotic infections. Yeah. yeah, good. Well, we just have a few minutes left. We'll try to cover all these viewer questions. Yeah. We had a caller from Rapid City wondering how long MRSA can stay in a person's body after infection. So we're talking about staph aureus infections. Yeah. If someone does get a bloodstream infection, how long does that person have to be on antibiotics? Yeah, again, I think it depends on the host and yeah. you know, severity 
severity of their infection and so many uh, variables, you know. Uh, but I think the uh, generally they require weeks of antibiotics, yeah. especially if they're in the in, it's in the blood, you know. Uh, if they have any prostatic material like a heart valve yeah. or a joint, you know, maybe even longer, like sometimes six weeks, Eight you know. Weeks, yeah. uh, it mm -hmm. kind of depends how they are responding. Um, but I think we have to differentiate a little bit from uh, like what we call colonization and, sure. and, and infection, you know. Yeah. So I think infection uh, would mean, you know, when staph is is in, in in the place of your body where it's not supposed to be, like in the right. blood, you know, and it's causing disease, you know. Mm -hmm. But staph could be, you know, at, in the part of your body yeah. where it's I supposed to be. I might have some on my skin yeah. right now. And it's not causing disease, no. you know. So right. if it is on your skin, it's not causing disease, mm -hmm. it's colonizing you. So we do not treat colonization. That's a very important concept, you know. Uh, but I think for infection, um, especially depending on where it is, um, it may require prolonged treatment and, mm -hmm. and so many variables, you know, which we have to look into as we right. monitor these patients. Right. Know. But some of those patients do end up requiring an IV antibiotic for, like you said, six weeks four, or more. Yeah, yeah, four to six it's weeks. It's aggressive. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, we, a caller said a few years ago in the news there was a measles outbreak in Minnesota. What is the danger of measles? Specifically, they ask for a pregnant pa a person. Yeah, I think I think that's a significant. You know, that kind of brings mm -hmm. the importance of childhood, you know, immunizations. You know, right. and I think one of uh, the disruptions with COVID has been a breakup of the childhood, mm -hmm. you know, immunizations. You know, so I think the outbreaks have happening. You know, where immunization uh, rates have been low. Uh, it, it, it was also an outbreak in in New York and some other parts yeah. of USA um, as well. You know, mm -hmm. uh, but I think you know, uh, in immunosuppressed individuals, including pregnancy and others, um, sure. even even measles can cause severe infection in adults as mm -hmm. well, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. something we don't want. Yeah. A similar question, um, this person had chicken pox as a child. We do not hear much about this, and is it because of the childhood vaccine? When did we start vaccinating infants for chicken pox, for varicella? Yeah, uh, several years ago. Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably been closer than 15 or 20 years ago, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember, but yeah. more than a decade ago, yeah. maybe 15 years ago, yeah. Sure. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's also, I think, important, you know, so, yeah. uh, because that can cause severe disease as mm -hmm. well, um, in, in children as well as in adults as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah but that's really changed from yeah. Yeah. when, with, with when the we were kids and everyone been, got yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, now we don't see too much of that. You yeah, know, so. I did see, I saw um, a young adult um, about a year ago who did have chicken pox that hadn't gotten their childhood vaccine, so yeah. it is still out there for people who, who don't get their vaccines. Yeah. Um, on the line of chicken pox, we had a caller ask about, can stress cause shingles? Or what typically causes that shingles outbreak? Random, I think sometimes stress. Sometimes waning immunity, I think. Yeah. And I think if your immune system is, you know, compromised due to a disease you mm -hmm. get, you know, uh, if you get put on medications, you know, which can decrease your immune system, you know, I think that can bring it on the reactivation, you know. So yeah. stress has a major <laughs> role in a lot of things. I, sure. I don't know there's correlation with infections, you know, but I think that's maybe possible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And compared to our old shingles vaccine, the one we have now as of a few years ago is really effective. So yeah, I rec yeah. recommend that to adults over 50. Over 50, yeah. yeah. The shingles vaccine, you know, three months apart, two doses yeah. is highly recommended. Yeah, yeah good. Um, we had a caller from Sioux Falls wondering about whether certain blood types are more resistant to COVID-19, specifically if type O is more resistant. Is there anything to that? I've, I've had that question from patients and I don't have any knowledge that there's any truth to that. Not sure. Uh, I mean, there may be some truth to it. I don't know if it has been researched 
to the point where you know it has some clinical implications for us. Sure. For example, in my practice, I still have to recommend vaccines to everybody, of regardless of their blood blood group. You know. Yeah. Because I think everybody is is susceptible. Uh, but I think there's a lot which what we do not know about COVID. Still, I think I mean it's three years. You know, but I think mm -hmm. it's uh, still uh, it's, it's a young disease we are trying to to understand. And I think there'll be more. I think information about it, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think at this point, what I would suggest is, regardless of the blood group, you know, vaccination is important. Right. You know? yeah. yeah, good. Um, in, in our last couple of minutes, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we're coming sort of out of a really heavy couple of years of learning about a new virus and, and this pandemic. What lessons do you think we've learned to take forward looking for? You know, the next pandemic, which probably is sure to come in yep. our lifetimes, I would assume. You're absolutely right. I think, you know, if you look in the last 10 years, uh, you know, there was the SARS-1, which came mm -hmm. around 2001, 2002. Then we had the MERS, you know, the Middle yeah. Eastern, you know, virus. Uh, then we had the Ebola scare, you know, which affected a lot of people in, in, in African countries. Yeah. Fortunately, not too much um, in USA. Right. We had the Zika, you know, mm -hmm. globally. And I think we talk about COVID so much because it has affected USA sure. more than uh, any of those. But globally, a lot of these are, are mm -hmm. happening, you know, and I think with the globalization, travel, maybe climate change, you know, I, I think there will be, there's a yeah. possibility of for us to see another pandemic, maybe right. sooner than what we think, you know. Right. So I think the lessons learned are, are very, very important, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I think uh, a major lesson, I think, is, is how we develop trust, you know, uh, trust between the providers yeah. and the patient, the government, the health departments, and, and how we um, develop collaboration. You know? Yeah, agreed. So I think developing trust and collaboration uh, can save many lives. Yeah. Uh, in in a pandemic, no nobody can be right 100% of the time, 100%, you know, right. <laughs> always, you know, we in every scenario. We learned a lot, you know? week, week so, to week, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. We, we all learn through phases, yeah. you know. Good. Uh, so I think hopefully, that's important. Hopefully um, that will so all I think, serve I think us well that, going forward. Uh, developing yeah. trust, I think, is really important. Collaboration mm -hmm. is important. And I think following science, you know, is important, mm -hmm. you know. Good. Uh, we have gone, gone through a lot of uh, phases where uh, we did what we, uh, yeah. it was difficult, you know, to try everything, but with, with time we learned what worked, what didn't work, you know. Right, uh, so, good. Yeah. Thank you. The winner of our prize tonight is Chris from Arlington. Thank you, Chris, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you, and we'll be back after this. Miss an episode or looking for a specific topic? Head to our YouTube channel or website, prairiedoc.org, today to access all on call with the Prairie Doc episodes. And make sure to join us most Thursdays on SDPB and Facebook for new shows. As a lover of the history of science and medicine, one of my favorite topics to read and learn about is the discovery of germ theory. Up until the mid to late 1800s, diseases had numerous other theories, and the theory of miasma, meaning bad air, dominated as an explanation for cholera, plague, and other infectious outbreaks. Bacteria themselves were seen and discovered with the development of the first microscopes in the 1600s. Dutch scientist Antony von Leeuwenhoek is credited as the father of microbiology, having created the early versions of our modern microscopes. Though he saw microbes with his inventions, the idea that these tiny organisms caused disease was yet to be discovered. 
Germ theory, though it had been getting smattered in earlier times, really did not take off until discoveries by 19th century thinkers, including Louis Pasteur, Joseph Lister, and Robert Cook. This was an exciting time to be a biologist, and in my opinion, these careers are all worthy of blockbuster movies. By the early 1900s, an enormous shift had occurred, and the idea that microorganisms could cause disease was well accepted. Initially, the discovery of germ theory was most useful in prevention. Sanitation of water and food went a long way toward decreasing outbreaks of previously common diseases. But another huge change occurred in 1928 with the discovery of penicillin. Penicillin was a chemical compound secreted by a type of mold, which Alexander Fleming found killed bacteria. By the mid-century, many other antibiotics were discovered and ultimately used to treat bacterial infections. Antibiotics are certainly one of the greatest advancements in the history of medicine and have saved countless lives worldwide. However, as our ability to treat them has advanced, bacteria have continued to evolve. By numerous processes, some types of bacteria have changed in ways to evade once effective antibiotics. At the same time, development of new types of antibiotics have slowed to a trickle in the 21st century. Life-threatening bacterial infections for which we have no or limited ability to treat are a real concern of experts in infectious disease. The challenge of our era, I think, is mitigating the danger posed by antibiotic-resistant infections. The most important step we can all take is to reduce the use of antibacterial medicine when it is not necessary. Challenges for our hospital teams include looking critically every day to see if and which antibiotics can safely be stopped in hospitalized patients. Preserving the efficacy of this precious resource will be the work of all of us. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Nazir, for volunteering his time to help us learn more about infectious disease. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. So from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thank you for joining us for another episode of health information based on science, built on trust. And until next time, stay healthy out there, people. While kidney stones and bladder issues can affect men and women, enlarged prostates, prostate cancer, and low testosterone are some of the reasons to see a urologist. Men, your health, your body, urology. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Duck. Based on science, built on trust. Join us in supporting the Prairie Ducks as we enter our 21st season. Hello, my name is Dave Heink, and I serve on the volunteer board of the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 charity that secures funding for Prairie Doc programming. This past year, we celebrated 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information from our four Prairie Docs, each of whom volunteers their time to answer important health questions. Thank you to our viewers who continue to help make this programming possible. 
you are making a difference for public health information in our state. Your donation allows us to continue to deliver on Rick and Joni Holmes' mission, set out over two decades ago. As a friend, supporter, and volunteer for this organization, I believe in its mission, and I know the vital impact it makes in our communities. Please continue to follow us on social media, on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and YouTube. If you're so inclined, you may make a donation online at prairiedoc.org. Prefer not to donate online? Reach out to us via email and our staff will send you a pledge form. Thanks again for supporting our mission and Prairie Doc programming. Medical information based on science, built on trust. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by at Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello Possibility, Hello Healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Tell Communications. <laughs>